You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're on page 31. We will look at the section entitled Denominations tonight. Next week, we'll look at the section entitled Fundamentalism. And that will close it out for us. Okay, so tonight is Denominations. 1648 to 1925 are our boundary dates. You remember way back, just to refresh your memory, but way back in the beginning of your syllabus, where we laid out the the uh, topics on your course outline, you'll notice under denominations we had division and conscience. Those are the two big ideas that we will look at tonight under the heading of denominations, is the idea of division and conscience. Division meaning the, what happened, how did we go from first Roman Catholic Church was the only essential uh, church, at least externally available, and then to the uh, the Reformation, and then coming out of the Reformation, how what happened so that today there's probably 10,000 different denominations. It's incredible. And the answer to that is division, <laughs> and what drives the division is conscience, people's conscience, and we'll explore that some more. So let's just take a look at our beginning day here, 1648. And for those of you who arrived late, my mumbling has to do with um, some dental work that was done earlier today. So anyways, our, um, our beginning date, 1648, is a good date because it marks the date of the Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia. The Peace of Westphalia brought an end, it was a series of treaties actually, that brought an end to the Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War raged across Europe. And it itself, the Thirty Years' War, was not one conflict, but a number of conflicts, as you see there. In Germany, it was Protestants versus Catholics. And uh, within the Holy Roman Empire itself, it was the emperor versus the various states, or, or um, um, uh, what would we call them? We would call them, um, well, the word eluded me, or states for now. And furthermore, a war between France and Austria-Spain. So this peace treaty officially ended the medieval papacy's political power. He was unable to, to resolve this thing. In fact, Pope Innocent X's objections to the peace treaty itself were ignored. So this was a turning point in European history. The Pope's power prior to this was virtually supreme. And uh, what we what occurs in this period and continuing is a rising European nationalism, meaning that the 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 residents they weren't really citizens at this point, but residents of these countries began to see themselves first as as Frenchmen or Englishmen or or Dutchmen or or Spaniards or Italians or so forth, and so there was a kind of a growing sense of national identity that began to rise up and cause the the overall structure of that of Europe to to uh, to tremble and quake 
as these nations began to coalesce. Prior to this, the Pope was the top supreme council or supreme uh, authority. Even the kings had to submit to the Pope. But by this point, uh, the power of the papacy had uh, had declined. As a result of the Peace of Westphalia, you see that France was elevated to an international power. So the, the French uh, became very, very powerful in this in the period in the years that followed. And notice Germany, just the opposite, spent the next 200 years as 343 separate sovereign states. So we, we identify Germany as a nation, a country, and so forth, but that's really a very recent history. So you figure 200 years from 1648 takes us to the mid-1800s before Germany itself begins to form into a country. In Germany, a person's religion, whether they were Catholic, Lutheran, or Calvinist, was determined by the religion of the prince in whose territory you lived. So if you had Calvinistic leanings, but you were living in a in a territory, meaning that your your family farm was in a territory in which the prince was Catholic, you had to convert to Catholicism or leave your territory, leave your family farm and so forth. And so there was some shuffling that went on as a result of that, but um, there was a, it was a difficult time to live, to be sure. So, the Peace of Westphalia. Now, let's talk about denominations. What is a denomination? Dictionary definition, an organized group of religious congregations. Okay, it's as good, as, good an answer as any. Differentiates from a sect. So what is a sect? We have denominations and we have sects. What's the difference? The sect comes from the Latin. It means a faction or a following. Usually applies to bodies of Christians that have separated themselves off from the church, having their own doctrinal distinctives with regard to practices of worship, etc. It's usually employed uh, of smaller groups. And the members of the small group don't refer to themselves as a sect. It's what others say of them. You're just a sect. It's a pejorative term. It means that you've separated yourself off from uh, orthodoxy be because of whatever you're holding firmly to. What characterizes a sect, and you can see it, they're small in number. There's additions to doctrines of the parent group. So it may be a, a change in the mode of baptism. It may be the addition of things like foot washings or Sabbath um, participations and things like that. They normally attempt to identify themselves as the truly regenerate. So they see themselves as the, as the pure church, the true church. Remember the Donatists? We've talked about them a number of different times. The Donatists were really a sect. Uh, they were driven out of the church, but they, were, they saw themselves as the pure church. They were attempting to purify the church. And the sects are uh, characterized by proselytizing, so winning others to their point of view. So, denomination, sect. Third distinction is what we would call a cult. Oh, denomination, sect, cult. What's a cult? Well, the adherence, this is what makes a cult, adherence to doctrines which are pointedly contradictory to Orthodox Christianity and which yet claim the distinction of either tracing their origin to Orthodox sources or of being in essential harmony with those sources. So they are 
pointedly contradictory, and yet they claim that they are part of, we're, and we're talking about Christian cults here, they claim to be part of Christianity, and yet they are pointedly at odds with it. Cultism in short, this comes from Walter Martin's book, cultism in short is, quote, any major deviation from Orthodox Christianity relative to the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, particularly the fact that God became man in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's the fulcrum point is what do you say about Jesus Christ? So when you depart from orthodoxy with regard to Christ, then you move uh, into the land of the Christian cult. What characterize cults? Non or extra biblical sources of authority a corrupt view of Christ, alteration of specific doctrines, and a only one right mentality. It's their way or the highway. Okay? So, in your uh, syllabus on page 70, you turn to page 70, you'll see the major that's not what I wanted. That's what I wanted. Major Christian cults of the 19th century. My tea bag broke open. Now I feel like I'm chewing tobacco. So we've got Mormons, Adventists, Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses. Interesting, isn't it, that they all uh, sprouted in the 19th century. Here in America. All good things start in America. So we're not, I'm not going to read it to you. It's there for you. But uh, let, your, let your eyes just sort of slip down to the, uh, the middle of the page. Extra biblical sources of authority. Notice for the Mormons. It's the Book of Mormon, Doctrine of Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and then the ongoing divine revelation through the president of the church. So he's constantly... Receiving new revelation. Among the Adventists, it's the writings of Ellen G. White. And then the continuing gift of prophecy within the church. So you have, you have this idea that you, you no longer have a closed canon. It's constantly being amended and added to and so forth. Among the Christian science, it's a science and health with key to the scriptures. Christian science is so interesting a name because it is neither Christian nor scientific but thus it is named. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, and then the writings um, produced by the headquarters there in Brooklyn, New York. Doctrine of God, Mormons are polytheists. The Adventists are Orthodox in that matter. The Christian Science are pantheists. Uh, all is God and matter does not exist. That's what they maintain. And then uh, among Jehovah's Witnesses, they are monotheists, and the doctrine of the Trinity is denied. So they are Unitarian in that. Person of Christ. For the Mormons, Christ divine but not unique. Adventists view Christ as orthodox. And there is, a, there is some who wonder whether the Adventists are um, a cult or a sect. Uh, I'm inclined to see him as a, as a cult, although there has been movement among the Adventists, moving back towards orthodoxy. 
Christian science distinguishes between Jesus the man and Christ the divine idea. They were Gnostic or are Gnostic. Okay. And then uh, for the Jehovah's Witnesses, it's Arianism. So you can kind of trace that through. Yep. Well, um, you just begged my question. Yeah, my question is, is Roman Catholicism a cult according to the definition I've just given you of a cult? Does it make does it meet the test of a cult? Yep, check. Corrupt view of Christ. Yeah. Christ doesn't save in their church. He mostly saves. <laughs> okay, yep. Uh, alteration of specific doctrines. Uh huh. Yep. And we'll, one right and teller, one true church. Yep. Yeah. I think you could make a case that Roman Catholicism is a cult. It would be the world's largest cult, if that were true. So, yeah. Yep. It's just a false religion. What else would it be? Yeah. Right. Right. You know, our answer is denomination, a sect, or a cult. That's all you get. That's all you get. That's it. That's it. You got to pick one. Yep. Yep. Certainly um, has all those uh, aromas surrounding it, doesn't it? Yeah. Which, yeah, if you want to, you want to send um, people off the deep end, announce that publicly. <laughs> you know, that will um, that will challenge people. But yeah, I understand and can't disagree. Okay. Uh, what brought about the denominations? This is the idea of conscience. So, the result of the principle of religious freedom of thought and the doctrine of separation. Right? So, Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, one denomination think the other denomination is outside of the faith? No. No. But why can't we all just get along. Why do we have to have multiple denominations? What's the source of it? The source of it is here. It is this principle of religious freedom that was captured in the Reformation, taken to its next logical stage, which was um, that my, I can, my conscience is captive to the Word of God and not to any other authority. And so before God, if this is how I understand the scriptures, I can't continue in X, Y, or Z. I have no choice. I have to separate. You have to understand, uh, I mean, for us today, it's not that big a deal. We're all pretty independent, a lot of people. kind of We're sort of separatists at heart. But think about 1,500 years, 1,600 years, there's only one way. And now, 
the trauma of of like dividing off and having the the audacity to say that you're a church now. How can that be? I mean, you're, right? So we have doctrinal disagreements. Another reason for denominations based on the teachings of the founder and or accompanying tradition. So we'll look at this when we look at uh, Wesley, for example. Disagreements over practices of things like the Lord's table, baptism, modes of baptism, so forth. We saw that among the Anabaptists, right? They felt compelled to separate over that. So these are the things that lead to denominations. So let's take some time and look at the um, the various mainline denominations. And in your, uh, well, we'll get to it. Let's see. So let's begin with the Lutherans. Let's look at the Lutheran denomination. So Luther did not intend to split the Roman Catholic Church. That was not his intention. His intention was to reform the church. Luther would have said, oh, thank you. Yeah, Luther was not looking to start a denomination. It, that was not his intention at all. His intention was to reform the Roman Catholic Church. The church refused his reformation, so Luther would say, the church moved from me, I didn't move from the church. But the reality of the matter is, a denomination began. It sprung up around him. And after his death, the, the, um, the leadership of his reformed movement passed into the hands of his followers, most significant of which was this fellow right here, Philip Melanchthon. Melanchthon was the soft side of Luther. Right? Luther was a bombastic individual. Um, Melanchthon was much more ironic and um, peaceful. And he did a lot to interpret Luther to the world. And so Luther was his teacher, his mentor, and he, he operated the sandpaper and the files and the planes and kind of smoothed the edges of Luther a little bit and made it a little more presentable to the world. At Luther's direction, for example, Melanchthon wrote the Augsburg Confession of 1530 as an attempt to patch up the breach with Rome. So Luther is still trying to repair the breach with Rome. He still wants and understands one church, Roman church. The 28 articles that make up the confession, notice nine were accepted by the Roman church without comment. Six were accepted with qualification and 13 were rejected. So the attempt at, at bringing reconciliation with the Catholic church ended. Lutheranism today is still in pursuit of reconciliation with the Catholic church. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> I don't think it, that one can maintain uh, fidelity to the gospel and be reconciled to the Catholic Church. And so if, if Lutheranism moves in, in totality in that way, they will lose it all. But the unaltered Augsburg Confession of 1530 is considered to be the heart of evangelical Lutheranism. So let's take a look at that confession just briefly. So here's, here's some uh, analysis of it. In terms, first, of its weaknesses, there is, a, there is contradictions within it. Let me just state it that way. And so it, in Article 9, it, it, it has the smell of baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration, which means that upon baptism, the soul is then regenerate. Okay? 
And a regenerate person is a child of God. We would use regeneration uh, interchangeably with someone who is saved. So notice um, Melanchthon's words here. Of baptism, they teach that it is necessary to salvation, and that by baptism the grace of God is offered, and that children are to be baptized, who by by baptism being offered to God are received into God's favor. They condemn the Anabaptists, who allow not the baptism of children and affirm that children are saved without baptism. So you see the strong attachment to the concept of baptism and its spiritual um, importance for children and, and indeed gives them life. Beyond that, you can kind of look down uh, the rest of the, um, the articles of the Confession. Notice that they avoid the subject of eschatology. Luther had no idea about eschatology, so he doesn't make any attempts at it. What about the strengths? What strengths do we find in it? Well, we find a strong statement in uh, in four of justification by faith alone. Notice. Also, they teach that men men cannot be justified or obtain forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God by their own powers, merits, or works, but are justified freely of grace for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into into that they are received into favor and their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake, who by his death has satisfied our sins. This faith God doth impute for righteousness before him. So that is a good, strong, orthodox understanding of justification by faith. And that's why I say there's this contradiction going on between the earlier statement about the necessity of baptism and this strong statement about justification by faith. Or it doesn't take a lot of effort to, to think, how can, a, how can an infant exercise saving faith? They can't. Notice also the strengths of it is the individual right to interpret Scripture and then strong statements on the doctrines of God Christ than original sin. So, on balance, it's a it's a good it's a good statement. Now, what about the Reformed people? Where do they come from? Well, notice John Calvin has no denomination named after him. Luther has a denomination named after him. Calvin doesn't. There is no Calvin denomination, no Calvinistic denomination. Calvinism itself produced a theological school of thought rather than a specific church. Calvinism was an influence that has been felt by many churches. The Reformed Church was strongest in the Netherlands, the Dutch Reformed. Anybody Dutch Reformed background here, by the way? Okay. Um, So Dutch Reformed and in, in, uh, in America, the Reformed Church in America, and Christian Reformed Church. There are other Reformed churches that exist in Germany and France. In France, the Reformed were the Huguenots. Calvinism spawned the Presbyterian Church, which was located primarily in England and Scotland via John Knox, and then they brought it to America. Originally, the churches were strongly confessional, tended to stress doctrine and intellectual understanding rather than emotional response to the gospel. Let's take a look at our friend here. This, by the way, uh, for bearded men, is uh, something worthy to uh, aspire to. That's a serious Scottish beard. 
told John Knox. So he brought Calvinism to Scotland. Theologically, these groups, the Reformed groups, are firmly rooted in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, the Synods of Dort, and for the Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession of 1647. Now, let's jump to America. How did the Reformed Church get here? The first Reformed pastor came to America in 1628 under the care of the West India Company. That's a long history in America. It goes back. Church became independent in 1771, known as the Reformed Protestant Dutch Church in America. That's a lot to put on a church sign. Notice they founded Rutgers College in 1825. Okay, that's a, that was originally a Reformed school. You'll notice, I'll go through here, we'll mention a number of these Ivy League or near Ivy League schools from the East Coast. They were all formed originally to instruct um, theological students. And they've long since lost the gospel and become havens of wokeness and nonsense. But anyway, Rutgers College, 1825. Reformed Church in America changed their name in 1867 to the Reformed Church in America. Notice these uh, important leaders in the history of the Reformed Church in America. First was Norman Vincent Peale. that surprise you? Yeah, remember, right? Reformed churches, what do they hold to? Calvinism, these, these orthodox confessions of faith, right? And yet Norman Vincent Peale, 1898 to 1993, known for the power of positive thinking, was a, uh, a Reformed church, an America pastor. He paved the way for Robert Schuller, following him, also Joel Olstein and Oprah Winfrey, can trace their lineages to Norman Vincent Peale, by the way, Southern California. So America created all the 19th century cults. California created all the 20th century screwballs. Okay? They come out of California. We have uh, Robert Schuller, 1926 to 2015, another Reformed church in America pastor. <coughs> his uh, His... Thinking and teaching uh, is um, very influential in the word faith movement. So his was the idea of um, that thoughts are causative. That was Schuler's big thing, that your thoughts become causative, meaning that you think it and it becomes reality. Christian Reformed Church separated from the RCA in 1857. So you can see there was problems a long way back. They were conservative in emphasis on the Heidelberg Catechism. They founded Calvin College and Seminary in 1876 because Rutgers was already going out to sea, so they formed another school. This you'll see over and over again. This is the history of Bible colleges and seminaries. They just don't seem to last beyond a couple of generations. Same thing happening now. Calvin College and Seminary has gone liberal. Okay, the Christian Christian school has gone liberal. Important leaders in the Christian Reformed Church. Maybe some of these names you know: Louis Burkhoff, eighteen seventy three to nineteen fifty seven; William Hendrickson, nineteen hundred to nineteen eighty two. Commentary series by Hendrickson, very excellent series. Abraham Kuyper, 
1837-1920, former Prime Minister of the Netherlands. Right? It was a time when the Prime Minister of the Netherlands was, a, was an Orthodox Christian man a long time ago. Right? Christian Reformed Church. Okay, how about Scottish Presbyterianism? Another flavor. It's like Baskin Robbins. You have 28 flavors here. Brought to Scotland in 1555 by John Knox, who got his training in Calvin's Geneva. Became the State Church of Scotland. Very, very instrumental. The Scottish Presbyterians were very instrumental in drafting the Westminster Confession and pushing it through in both England and Scotland. The chief source of the spread of Presbyterian Presbyterianism to America in the late 17th and 18th century came from the Scottish Presbyterians. They founded Princeton University in 1746. Jonathan Edwards, their first president. He didn't really serve because he got a smallpox vaccination and died from it. Notice this. They strongly, the Scottish Presbyterians, they're a kind of a, the Scotsmen are a warring group of people. And uh, they were strongly behind the Revolutionary War. They were one of the driving forces behind the justification of the of the American Revolution. They saw England's transgressions not so much as taxation and those kinds of issues, but they saw the the issue as the the uh, superimposition of the Church of England upon those who had already broken with Anglicanism. So for the Scottish Presbyterians, the American Revolutionary War, at least from the pulpits, was justified as uh, a resistance against being having this ungodly system of Anglicanism reimposed upon them. They'd come to, to America to evade it, and they were not about to have it reimposed. Okay? During, the, uh, during the years of the Revolutionary War, up through the Civil War, American Presbyterianism grew and then split over doctrinal issues related to Arminianism and Revivalism. So we had what was called Old Light Presbyterians and New Light Presbyterians. In the late 19th century, early 20th century, what happened to Presbyterianism? Well, the influx of German higher criticism uh, further split and divided them. The turning point for the conservative element within Presbyterianism came in 1924 when the fundamentalists failed to expel this character. No beard, no hat. Yeah, He's a rebel. 1924, the fundamentalists failed to expel Harry Emerson Fosdick a Baptist liberal from the pulpit of New York City's first Presbyterian church who's counted among its distinguished membership, J.D. Rockefeller. Okay. So what had happened? The church had become liberal enough to invite a liberal Baptist to become their pastor into a Presbyterian pulpit. Pretty hard to imagine, actually. So um, those of you who still have hymnals, uh, you probably would find hymn number 292, God of Grace and God of Glory. This, uh, you recognize this one? God of Grace and God of Glory? Yeah? Author?
Pause there. Yep. It's funny how we will sing things we won't say. How often that is true. Yep. 1929, fundamentalists were forced to leave Princeton Seminary and form Westminster Seminary. So Princeton Seminary would have, was now going liberal. Right? Princeton was founded in 1746. By 1929, so less than 200 years later, Princeton was lost. By the way, Princeton was founded because Harvard was lost. <laughs> Harvard was lost. PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, founded in 1973. So more recently, after a 30-year struggle within the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., more conservative than the OPC, but they do allow some wiggle room on the Westminster Confession. Leaders. Let's see. Anybody know that guy? No. No, no beard, no hat. That's true. No beard, no hat. Yeah. Well, R.C. Sproul. In heaven, enjoying his, his reward, right? Leader among the PCA. Another one. Remember this fellow? Former dance instructor. D. James Kennedy. You know that name? Evangelism Explosion, that was his uh, evangelism program and was quite successful in, uh, in a time when uh, Southern Florida, Coral Gables, was just growing and growing and growing, and he would go door to door and share the gospel and built a megachurch down there. Okay? So these were PCA guys. We have the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Notice the um, the tree that began as just one trunk is now beginning to have branches. So we have the OPC. So uh, 1929, J. Gresham Machen, together with Robert Dick Wilson, who was an Old Testament scholar and uh, one of my favorites, and we got to make that one bigger, sorry. That was the biggest picture I could find on the internet. All right. Is that a little better? He looks like a grim character, doesn't he? That's Cornelius Van Til. Cornelius Van Til. Ned B. Stonehouse, John Murray, E.G. Young, E.J. Young, they all left Princeton Seminary together to form Westminster Seminary. Something similar happened in 1986, by the way, when a group of seminary professors left Talbot Seminary and began the Master's Seminary for similar reasons. A student of theirs named Carl McGuire, who graduated in 1931, was involved in the event. In 1933, Machen tried unsuccessfully to get the General Assembly of the PCUSA to pass a ruling preventing liberals from getting... Um, uh, serving as missionaries. So when he was unsuccessful, he and J. Oliver Buswell, president of Wheaton College, and Carl McIntyre, along with several others, formed an independent missionary board. And for this act, they were defrocked and expelled. 
from the PC USA in 1934. Okay. 1936, the same men formed the Presbyterian Church of America, later split again on um, Machen's death. You can see that the OPC, conservative, Calvinistic, holds firmly to the Westminster Confession, although Westminster Seminary is not officially a member of the OPC. Okay? So that's kind of the landscape of Presbyterianism. And are you guys coming out of Presbyterianism, out of this background? Okay. What um, affiliation did you have? Okay. Yep. Okay. Let's talk about Anglicanism. This one's a little more foreign to us, although there's an American flavor of it. Here, let's make him small. Yeah, he's a hat guy. Okay. The Anglican Church is the state church of England. Developed out of the controversy of the English Reformation. Remember, Anglicanism can be traced back to Henry VIII's libido. Current form of the Anglican Church was worked out under Queen Mary I. It was a halfway compromise between the Roman Catholic and the Protestant positions. Head of the Anglican Church is the Archbishop of Canterbury, of which Thomas Kramer was the original, 1489 to 1556. That's the Anglican Church. Packer, what was that? Anglican, yes. Go ahead. Um, yes, basically. Yeah, that is something about Americanism. Um, we are, um, we are an independent group of people. We are far more quickly willing to separate than our European cousins. So, it's probably true. We have the Puritans, right? So what were the Puritans about? The Puritans were attempting to purify the Anglican church from its bad doctrine. So the Puritan movement can be traced to John Wycliffe, Morning Star of the Reformation, William Tyndale and his work with the Scriptures, their assistance on individual conversion, the authority of the Scriptures. These were the hallmarks of Puritanism. The movement began in 1558 by those who were frustrated with, with uh, Queen Mary's, or Queen Elizabeth, rather's um, compromise with the Catholic ritual. During the reign of James I, the Puritans were rebuffed by the king, caused them to flee first to Holland, then later to Massachusetts Bay. Charles I attempted to drive all the Puritans out of England and resulted in an even larger migration to the New World. So this is how America began, these people who came here. Puritanism prospered under uh, this fellow, Oliver Cromwell who presided over the beheading of the king, Charles. Okay. That was an unheard of thing to do, <laughs> to behead your own king. He was himself a Puritan, Cromwell was, but after his reign, the Restoration Act of 1660 reestablished the dominance of the Church of England. So England was temporarily reformed and then went back. Um, the, the Puritan reforms were cast aside in Anglicanism. The Church of England reigns supreme. So Anglicanism comes to America primarily through the Episcopal Church. 
Arrived in Jamestown in 1607. Prior to the Revolutionary War, the church received its organization and jurisdiction from the Church of England. You can see how some tensions might arise when your uh, uh, church authority lies across the pond. After the war, the church fell on hard times, experienced a period of slow growth up until the 19th century. During the 19th and 20th century, the church experienced rapid growth based upon the idea of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Or does that sound like to you? Sounds like liberalism. That's indeed what it is. Episcopal Church remains closely allied with the Church of England, one of the largest denominations in the U.S., although it's, I think it's fallen considerably. You can tell this syllabus is a little bit dated here by this sentence. Recent conflicts over the ordination of women and homosexuality have caused a decrease in church membership. They're fully sold out, Episcopal Church. Let's talk about Methodists. Methodists. Brother John. Methodism originated in England the first half of the 18th century, growing in response to the coldness of the Church of England. So Puritanism wanted to reform the Church of England. The Methodists, they come along later, they're in the early 1700s, first half of the 18th century. They are uh, less inclined to try to purify it and more inclined to just bypass it. Founders Wesley, who grew up in the Church of England, profoundly influenced by his devout mother, graduated from a master's degree from Oxford, became a priest in 1729. During these years, his religion consisted of a rigorous program of Bible study, self-denial, and good works. However, he remained unredeemed. Wesley later credits his actual conversion, May the 24th of 1738, to contact he had with the Moravians, beginning in 1736. Who were the Moravians? Well, let's see. Let's make him a little bigger. There we go. Pleasant looking fellow, huh? So, Moravians was a German pietistic movement. Right? Remember pietism we looked at in the book? Remember anybody given a definition of pietism? Take a stab at it. Self-reflection, meditation, holding equal authority with the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Although there was strong within the pietistic movement, strong emphasis on scripture reading, prayer meetings, those kinds of things. Okay, Personal devotions arise out of the pietistic movement. But the German pietistic movement was under Count Zinzendorf. That's who that character is right there. That is Count Zinzendorf, 1700 to 1760. So, could we criticize the Moravians? Sure, but check this out. The ratio of missionaries among the Moravians was 1 out of 60. 
compared to one out of 5,000 within the rest of Protestantism, generally aggregated. Okay, so what can we say about the Moravians? They were concerned about people's souls. Very concerned. And Wesley was converted as a result of their missionary endeavors as they traveled to America together. They traveled to Georgia on a ship, and they witnessed to him along the way, and it was very instrumental in him um, being saved. So from that point, from his conversion forward, he began a lifetime of evangelistic efforts that concentrated on open-air meetings and circuit preaching. Due to Wesley's evangelistic fervor, he's excluded from the pulpits of the Anglican Church. He earned, carried his message and his methods of Bible studies and devotions to the poor and the downtrodden of society. So he was an open-air preacher, traveled tens of thousands of miles on horseback, writing sermons and preaching multiple times a day. Finally, in 1784, Wesley broke with the Anglican Church, put forth the deed of declaration organizing the Methodist Church. The Methodist Church, like the Episcopal Church, is not unified based on common doctrine, but based upon ecclesiastical organization. Okay? It's an important point to understand. It's not that they, have a, they don't have a doctrinal statement that organizes them. They have an ecclesiastical organization that holds them all together. Some of the offshoots of the Methodists are the following. The Nazarene Church, 1907. African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church, 1816. Wesleyan Church, 1843. And then again, 1968. Two stabs at it. Pentecostal Church, 1900. Assemblies of God, 1914. Salvation Army, 1865. These are all offshoots of Methodism. So they can all trace theologically their their uh, understandings back to Wesley and his um, Arminian theology. Okay. Yeah, they just excluded him from the pulpit. They did not like the gospel message. Yeah, it is um, it is hard to imagine. Okay, let's talk about the free church because that's essentially what we are. We are part of the free church. Okay? What does it mean, free church? No offerings. <laughs> yeah. It actually means the church is free from, from state support. Okay? So, for example, if you are a, uh, a Lutheran in, in Germany, you pay taxes to the Lutheran Church. Huh? Who's the head of the Anglican Church in England? Do you know? Yeah, that's right. It was the King of England. King of England. So there was this still meshing of ecclesiastical and civil authorities together until you arrive at at the real free thinkers here. So, the history of the free church encompasses many individual threads. We're just going to look at congregationals and Baptists. So, congregational church. This is near and dear to my heart, having been born and brought up in New England, which was the 
fountainhead of congregationalism. So the group originated in England at the end of the 16th century in protest against the Church of England. Unlike the Puritans, they did not approve of the Presbyterian hierarchy, but insisted on the independence of the local church. To being driven out of England, first to Holland and then to America, they came to settle in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1620. So the, the, um, the, the founders of the country, as it were, at Plymouth were Congregationalists, not Puritans. And that's important to remember. The early leaders in the movement were Thomas Hooker, John Cotton, Richard Mather, Increase Mather, and Cotton Mather. That's a grandfather, father, son approach. Congregationalism grew strong in Connecticut and Massachusetts, brought the founding of Harvard College. Check that out. 1636. They landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620. They almost died that first year. And by 1636, they had already established Harvard College in order to train ministerial students. They were serious about their faith. They founded Yale College in 1701. Actually, I misspoke earlier when I said um, Princeton was because Harvard had gone liberal. Actually, is because Yale had gone liberal. But Yale was because Harvard had gone liberal. So, Yale College, 1701. Puritans and pilgrims shared a common Calvinistic doctrine and insisted upon evidence of election. Evidence of election prior to church membership. What would be evidences of election, do you think? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, change of behavior. Right? We shall know a tree by its fruit. So they were looking for the fruit of the Spirit. They were looking for Christian fruit before they would grant church membership. And you have to understand, church membership was, again, it's treated very cavalierly in our age, but church membership uh, was essential <laughs> in that time period. It was still incomprehensible for them. That, that there could be a man who claimed to be a Christian and, and was not part of the congregational church. They couldn't conceive of that. 1662, the halfway covenant was introduced, which reduced the stringent requirements for church membership. The halfway covenant was introduced because uh, those children who had been baptized but never converted were originally excluded from the decision-making process of the church. And uh, when more and more and more of them were being excluded from the decision-making process of the church, particularly the children and grandchildren of the original founders, the halfway covenant was introduced in order to try to re um, find some way through this um, problem, which is, what do we do with are unsaved, well, we, we don't, they're called them unsaved because they've been baptized, but they're obviously acting like heathens, so what do we do? We, we can't exclude half the community from the church. So they come up with the halfway covenant. It began a downward spiral in piety that was not reversed until the preaching of Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening of 1730. The late 18th century, oh, we should look at him too, huh? Let's just give him his due. There he is. Good-looking wig. Late 18th century, Congregationalism became infected with the leprosy of Unitarianism, which is Arianism. It came to full blossom in the 19th century. 
and it led to a split in the church in 1820. After the split, congregationalism in America began to slide into liberalism. Social reform became their main cause. Doctrine relegated to a back seat. Probably the biggest cause of the fall was the desire for unity rather than doctrinal purity. Christianity was viewed as a way of life rather than a set of propositions that must be believed and then acted upon. So they lost it. They lost it. hundred years is gone. Baptists. How many of you guys Baptists? Come out of a Baptist background and tradition. Okay. What about the rest of you? We all just saved out of paganism? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. Well, let's talk about our Baptists. Begins with the English Baptists. Founder of the modern English Baptist movement, John Smith. Notice how far back he goes. 1570 to 1612. A separatist from the Church of England and an Arminian in his theology. Smith and his small church of 80 fled to Holland, where they became involved with the Mennonites, 1610. Smith died. One of his church members, Thomas Helways, decided they had been wrong to run from the persecution, and so the moved, churches moved back to London. By 1626, five Baptist congregations had grown up in London. Same time. 1638, another separatist group who were Calvinistic in their theology implemented immersion as a mode of baptism. This group also grew. Probably one of its most famous members. John Bunyan. John Bunyan. Okay. Wrote what? Pilgrim's Progress. Have you guys read Pilgrim's Progress? I would commend it to you if you've never read it. Good old lay preacher, lay Baptist preacher, John Bunyan. Well, how did Baptists get to America? Well, the originator of the Baptists in America was Roger Williams. So I've got to get bigger for him. Hold on. There's more Roger Williams. Nice wig. Notice his date, 1603, 1683. As a separatist Puritan, he came to America seeking freedom, but found the Puritans of Massachusetts to be just as intolerant as the Anglican church he had left. He was driven out of Massachusetts in 1635. He secured land from the Indians and founded the colony of Rhode Island. Roger Williams founded the colony of Rhode Island, the first American Baptist. First Baptist Church of Providence was formed by him in 1639. Baptist churches grew rapidly in the middle colonies, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, due to a more tolerant attitude towards religious freedom. Prior to and during the Revolutionary War, the Baptist churches grew rapidly, strongly emphasized evangelism, and big supporters of the war. After the war, their growth continued at an even faster rate, growing at an annualized rate of 360% a year, whereas the population of the U.S. was only growing at 140% a year during the same time period. So you can see they were growing at almost three times the rate of population growth in the country. The Baptist church was exploding. Uh, on page 69 in your syllabus, and I'll put this up too. Let's see, make this smaller. With the glare, it's a little hard to read. Uh, page 69 in your syllabus. Page 
there's a breakdown of the religious affiliations for the 13 colonies. So, just calling on the left, all the way to the far right, the established church of that colony. So, Virginia was the Church of England. Massachusetts, Congregational Church. New Hampshire, Congregational. New York, Church of England. Maryland, Church of England. Connecticut, Congregational. Rhode Island, none. No established church. New Jersey, none. No established church. Delaware, none. No established church. North Carolina, Church of England. South Carolina, Church of England. Pennsylvania, no established church. So you notice how the middle colonies had a greater level of, of religious freedom of thought than they did in the north and the south. These are legally established churches, yes. Yes, and would drive out in the early days those who had contrary opinion, yeah. Yeah, so it's just fascinating to me that a country we look at it. Oh, it was, it was why was America founded? Well, religious freedom. Well, yeah, and no. <laughs> you had religious freedom as long as you believe the right way. <laughs> so if you're in if you're in the north in New England, then it's congregational, and if you're in the south, it's Church of England. So after Church of England, you know, after the after the Revolutionary War, it's not Church of England anymore. What is it? You know, Episcopalian. Okay, think about a Continental Congress. They come together. They got to. They got to form this unified. I mean, it's really a pretty amazing um, act of God's providence to bring together these separate colonies that disagree economically. <laughs> South was more agrarian. The North was more industrialized. You've got passionate religious differences. I mean, people killed each other over the stuff 150 years before. So, you know, your great-grandfather would have perhaps died in a, some sort of religious conflict over these things. And yet, they had to bring it together. So, they came up with a constitution and its various protections. It really isn't a marvelous thing. And it's a heritage that's been given to us. Unfortunately, we've mostly squandered it. But it is a pretty amazing gift. And nowhere else in the world, nowhere else in the world can um, such strong religious differences be able to come together and, and exist and live side by side in that way. So it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. So why do the Baptists grow so fast? What makes them grow? Why do the Wesleyans grow so fast? Why do the Methodist Church grow so fast? Multi-level marketing, yeah. Aggressive evangelism. Aggressive evangelism. So why did the Baptists grow fast? Aggressive evangelism. What did he say? Potlucks. Yes, indeed. Well, here are some of the reasons. Simplicity of doctrine compared to long creeds of other churches. A very simple doctrinal statement characterized the Baptist churches of those days. Rather than these big, long confessions of faith that you had to, uh, you know, cross all the T's, dot all the I's, it was a more of a simple, um, orthodox statement of, of God, Christ, and men in salvation. They were democratic organizations compared to hierarchies. Why would that 
contribute to the rapid growth following the, the American Revolutionary War, do you think? An independent spirit. I mean, what had been just cast off? <laughs> the king and the hierarchies associated with it, yes. So a religious movement that emphasizes democracy in a, in a brand new republic that had just fought a successful revolution every war against the premier superpower of the world and succeeded, you can see how it would appeal. Yes. Yes, there is conflict all over the place. Yep. Uh, notice the preachers were farmers. Most were not seminary trained. Okay. They were simple farmers who knew a little bit more than everybody else. They were kind of one sermon ahead of the congregation. They took advantage of the Western expansion of America following the, you know, you look at, here's the 13 colonies. It all runs along the East Coast. There's a lot of land between there and here. <laughs> and so westward expansion provided fertile ground for evangelism. No red tape involved in setting up churches after a revival meeting. This was their this was their strategy. They would, they would hold a revival meeting on the frontier. It would be publicized well in advance. And people would come in from the surrounding farms and so forth for the revival meeting that might go on for several weeks of preaching every night. Young people loved revival meetings because there was the, probably the only place you were going to meet a spouse. And so it was very much a family celebratory kind of thing. If you're a young man or a young woman and you're out on the farm and your choice of, of uh, mates is kind of slender, most of them have four legs. So, so you know, this is not going to work. So you go to the revival meeting and there you might meet some young man over the course of a couple of weeks of preaching and fall in love and get married. And so following the revival meetings, they would, if, they would constitute a church. And you know, they either pick or find someone who had a Bible and could read it. And you're the preacher. See you later. We'll, we'll be back in a few years for another revival meeting. Good luck to you. And then popular due to their stand for freedom. They emphasized freedom. Freedom of conscience. Freedom of, of uh, any kind of hierarchy over the church. Okay, So here we are at KCC, right? Who's the authority over KCC? Yes, I mean, the elders' authority is, is the Word of God. And the elders uh, lead and mediate in that way. But yeah. It's just a very flat um, organizational structure. Very flat. In the early 1800s, Baptists organized into conventions, primarily to promote missionary activity. So how do you, if you're lots of, of uh, small churches scattered all over the place, how do you do foreign missions? Because the Baptists have always been interested in foreign missions. How do you do it? Well, they formed mission societies, cooperative efforts, where each church would give a little into the, into the, into the pot and thus enable them to support missionary endeavor. By 1835, the Baptists in the South felt that their interests were not being met 
slavery issue was rising um, or raising quite a stir, as you can imagine. So they separated and formed the Southern Baptist Convention. This group is still the largest of all the Protestant groups. There are, last, as of 2021, 47,614 Southern Baptist churches in America. As of 2021, they had 13,680,493 members, down 14% over the decade. So, Southern Baptist Church at one time was the fastest growing. It is now in decline. Why is it in decline? Liberalism. Exactly. Liberalism. Yep, it's making its inroads. Today, there are at least 27 different Baptist groups with membership in excess of 10,000. One thing's for sure, Baptists are an independent lot. Yep. I had a friend who used to say, after we had been together and it was time for us to leave, he'd say, I got to make like a Baptist and split. <laughs> right? How do Baptists plant churches? They split. They split. Okay, so let's do this. If you turn to page 71, and since uh, the Novocaine has fully worn off, well, my jaw is beginning to hurt. You know, it's really interesting when they pull a tooth. Man, they put like both hands and a foot inside your mouth. You yank that sucker. Starting to, uh, yeah, starting to feel like it. So let's um, start on page 71 and then following I've included a, a family tree for each of these that you can just kind of glance at and get an idea of how rapidly the branches of the tree spread out. Take a look on, on page 76. Maybe we'll finish with this. The American Pentecostal family tree. And we will talk much more about this next week when we deal with fundamentalism. We will address Pentecostalism. But notice that Pentecostalism has grown out of Wesleyan theology, and in particular the holiness movement of, that characterizes Wesleyan theology, but it's relatively recent, relatively recent. Most of it uh, being birthed in the early part of the 20th century, so it's basically just 100 years old. And notice how many flavors of Pentecostalism there are now. Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, Church of God, Holy Church of America, Emmanuel Holiness Church, Church of Prophecy, Pentecostal Holiness, Pentecostal Fire, Baptized Holiness Church, Pillar of Fire, Assembly of God, General Council, Church of God by Faith, Inc. <laughs> <laughs> Pentecostal Assemblies of the Word, Inc. Pentecostal Church, United Pentecostal Church, Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ, Pentecostal Church of Christ, International Church of the Foursquare, we'll have fun with them. Pentecostal Church of America, of God in America, International Pentecostal Assemblies, Church of our Lord Jesus Christ of the Apostolic Faith, Inc. Oh, yeah. Doesn't that look fun? Calvary Pentecostal. Anyway. Lots and lots of branches to the American tree. Far more to the American tree than in any other part of the world, by far. Okay. 
we are an independent lot. Okay. Everybody turn in their timeline that was going to turn one in. Okay, good, thank you. Let's just look ahead real quick and see what we're going to try to accomplish next time. So we'll begin fundamentalism with a Scopes Monkey trial as our beginning point. We'll talk about the rise of fundamentalism, what was good about it, what's ugly. Let's see, is this included for you? Hold on. I want to look with you at sanctification under... Let's see if you have this. Under a Reformed and a Wesleyan understanding. Yeah, page 85. We will look at that. So we'll look at three models of sanctification. A Wesleyan view, a Keswick view, and a Reformed view. Okay. How does God sanctify us? Okay. So we'll look at that together. And then we'll trace the rise of Pentecostalism through its first, second, and third waves. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.